Thanks for listening and subscribe today for our new Substack newsletter. That's Michael Medved's context placing today's big events in the unique perspective of our past and our future. Go to michaelmedved.substack.com and sign up today for my uncensored take on current controversies. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day as we count down toward the New Hampshire primary. That's the first full primary in the country. It is one that has very often uh, led to a uh, selection of a presidential nominee and then the election of a president. If you want to read about New Hampshire primaries and what they mean and some of the uh, you take a look at some of those uh, Teddy White books uh, uh, T.H. White who wrote The Making of the President 1960 there's an excitement associated with the New Hampshire primary because unlike the caucuses where people actually meet face to face and it's a small turnout of people this is a major decision point and uh, that's why I thought it was so terrific that we're able to have David French on the air, who has written a, a an amazingly relevant and powerful and persuasive uh, commentary on what he believes to be the greatest threat posed by Trump. Uh, David French is a opinion columnist for the New York Times, but he is a longtime religious conservative who has fought hard for religious liberty in this country as a, a primary attorney for uh, Americans defending freedom. And he is uh, also a, a veteran of uh, the war against terror serving in uh, Iraq uh, for his country with some distinction. Uh, David, you have uh, a, a uh, the column which... Uh, I just had to read over again because it is so impactful. Uh, you put on the column, The Greatest Threat Posed by Trump. Uh, maybe you can go directly to talking about what that threat is in your estimation. Yeah, you know, I did not focus on the policies of a Trump administration. I do think that there would be wild political conflict in a second Trump term. Um, but what I am most concerned about is hit the ongoing cultural transformation I see in Red America, a transformation that I think a second Trump term could render unstoppable. And to be clear, I'm not talking about sort of the, the millions of people I know, and including friends of mine who have retained their kindness, their integrity, and their good sense, even though, you know, they've voted for Trump in the past and will likely vote for Trump in the future. Now, I'm talking about what is happening in the re the core MAGA base. And in that core MAGA base, what we're seeing is that the legacy of a second Trump term could be really, truly a conviction on the part of millions of Americans that Trumpism, as I wrote in the piece, isn't just a temporary political expediency, but the model for Republican political success and even worse, a model for the way that God wants Christian believers to practice politics. Because one thing that I have seen is eight, over the last eight years is that supporting Trump, especially amongst his core supporters, supporting Trump is degrading the character 
of a lot of Americans because they're having to lie, they're having to go along with lies, and it's really distressing to see the impact it's having on people's hearts and minds. Uh, Let me give you a little bit of a challenge about that, because if there is one thing that I think cost uh, Hillary Clinton her campaign for the presidency in 2016, it was the use of the term a basket of deplorables, (laughs) and it, it was her tendency to not just insult Trump, and that's kind of normal, that's what candidates do to one another, but to insult his supporters, to say that there was something wrong with them, that they were uh, morally compromised. And is that in any sense what you as a a resident, you grow up in uh, and and <laughs> live in red America, right? I mean, you're living in Tennessee, which is not a state that uh, President Biden hopes to carry. Uh is is your assessment about you believe the morally corruptive aspect of Trump's candidacy is that not close to the basket of deplorables dismissal of his supporters uh well it is close but let me just say this um i'm not a politician i'm not here try- i'm not out here trying to win an election And what I would say about Hillary's comment is that it was impolitic, but it wasn't necessarily false. Now, one thing about it is Hillary was not saying that everybody who supports Donald Trump is behaving deplorably or is deplorable. The the reality is, though, that there are many people who support Donald Trump who behave deplorably. (laughs) Now, I know there are many people who support Joe Biden who behave deplorably, but what we are seeing Michael is a is a culture created around Donald Trump that is aggressive, that is punitive, that is cruel, that is vicious, and it's having an effect on real people. And somebody has to say it. You can't sit there and live in a democracy and say, "Well, the the people are always right." Um, no, that is not the case at all. Sometimes the people are wrong, and sometimes people are wrong. And one of the things that I have seen is I have seen with my own eyes that Trump in many ways is one of the most culturally, is probably the most culturally influential single human being in red America right now. And his influence is not good. It's a terrible influence on Americans. And, you know, you can't just sort of say, well, don't tell, don't say what you believe to be true because it sounds similar to something that Hillary Clinton said. No, my job is to say what I believe to be true, no matter who it sounds like. Um, but I am seeing an impact on people's characters here in Red America. And it it just feels weird to not talk about it because it's so obvious and apparent. Well, given the limited time we have, what is the most apparent and most obvious a negative impact on this question of American character where you believe that uh, President Trump has had and continues to have a very negative impact? Cruelty. Cruelty. Um, The use of vicious personal insults, uh, threats, intimidation, that is what I see. And it's not just aimed at public officials. So, you know, I have friends who will make an innocent comment on Facebook um, in support or, you know, in opposition to something that Trump has said or done. And the vitriol, the viciousness, not polite disagreement, 
but just cruelty, personal insults that come cascading down upon them, often coming from people doing it in the name of Jesus Christ. It's just obvious, and it's everywhere. It's everywhere, and it's uh, and so that is the number one actual consequence that I have seen, cultural consequences, an escalating level of cruelty. When you talk about, uh, in your column, you quote a passage from Galatians in the New Testament where you talk about the fruit of the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit is characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Which of those does uh, President Trump uh, exemplify best? <laughs> None. <laughs> None at all. It's, it's, that's the problem is that you're talking about a person that so many people admire who does not exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. Instead, he exhibits the works of the flesh, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions. That's Trumpism to a T. And those are the works of the flesh. You don't see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness around Donald Trump at all. Well, let us have more peace, patience, and kindness for the United States of America. I know David uh, French is somebody who is working in that direction. Appreciate uh, your time on a very busy day. We've posted his column up at uh, michaelmedved.com. You can find out about it and his work. We'll uh, be paying more attention to the work of today coming up on the MedMed Show. He's smart, he's tough, he's sharp. Michael Medved. He's not going to allow bad things to continue to happen to this country that we all love. The Michael Medved Show. Thanks for listening and subscribe today for our new Substack newsletter. That's Michael Medved's context placing today's big events in the unique perspective of our past and our future, go to michaelmedved.substack.com and sign up today for my uncensored take on current controversies. Join in your daily dose of debate. Michael, I disagree with you 90%, but I never miss your show. The Michael Medved Show. And for somebody like that, uh, uh, please uh, do join us at our Substack. If you disagree with us 90%, we have a chance to write back. I, I do answer whenever I can. Uh, our most recent commentary at uh, Substack is uh, called Iowa in Context, which talks a little bit more deeply than you've heard in mainstream media about what the Iowa caucuses really show. And what it shows is, it seems to me, the general uh, disillusionment with this entire election and the entire process and the candidates available. That's why there was a record-breaking low turnout. And yes, of course, the weather played a big part in it as well. Uh, Check it out. Uh, Go to uh, Michael Medved at substack.com and sign up today for all of our uh, recent uh, commentaries placing situations in context, like the uh, recent caucuses in Iowa. Uh, Meanwhile, this is something I don't entirely understand, and maybe 
if if you can help understand it, uh, then I, I would uh, love to hear from you. One eight hundred nine five five seventeen seventy six is our phone number. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger had a recently difficult encounter uh, where he was hauled out of an airport to an ATM machine. And listen uh, carefully to what the uh, former governor of California had to experience. This is clip three. Arnold Schwarzenegger got not only stopped at customs in Munich, Germany, um, he was hauled out of the airport to an ATM machine back to the airport where they tried to get his credit card to pay about more than $10,000 for something that he brought into the country. I had no idea things like this happened. When when you hear the details, it sounds like... Arnold got caught in a scam at first, the way you hear it laid out. Totally. That someone leads him to a, an ATM and police. makes him... Police. Yeah, and make him take out money. Like, if you're Arnold, you must be thinking, what is going on here? But it is all on the up and up, and here are the details. It is wild. So Arnold uh, is going to Germany. He, he went, landed in Munich. Uh, he was going there because uh, one of the things he was going to be doing is auctioning off uh, one of his watches. For, uh, cha- for charity. For charity. Yes, uh, an Audemars Piget, which... The watch is probably, I, I don't know which model it is. It was custom made for him. I'm guessing it's over $100,000, roughly. I think you're right, based on the amount he had to pay. Right. Okay. And uh, the idea that he was hauled out of the airport at Munich, uh, this is... Um, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, a number of people have uh, been talking about a political comeback of some kind for him. Uh, but uh, given some of the problems, not necessarily like this one, uh, the uh, the idea that he had uh, a comment on this situation where he said, I had no idea things like this happen. Uh, do we have direct comment by uh, Governor Schwarzenegger about any of this? Here, here is the update. Uh, which is, he was detained for three hours by customs officials after landing at Munich Airport in Germany. No, he didn't bring a loaded handgun on board a flight to kill Sarah Connor, uh, despite it being in vogue for Americans. Uh, Obviously, your Terminator reference there. The Hollywood movie star and former California governor was wearing a luxury watch that he didn't declare upon entry. So Schwarzenegger estimates uh, that his Audemars Piguet watch is worth 20,000 euros, about $21,700. So that answers that uh, particular shock. Uh, Meanwhile, um, Bernie Sanders has uh, continued his role uh, as one of the leading voices against American support for Israel. And This is uh, basically something that he had to say challenging uh, Chris Hayes on MSNBC. This is clip four. Chris, this is a long-standing law that says something that's very sensible. 
if the taxpayers of this country are providing military equipment to any nation on earth, we have to make sure that that country is using it consistent with international law and human rights. This is longstanding. That's correct. And so you're, explain to me what the vote was on yesterday in, in, in that context. What the vote was on yesterday was to have the State Department do a study on whether or not uh, Israel was violating international law and human rights. Uh, and given the fact that many of the weapons that Israel has used in the last hundred days come from the United States of America, uh, we certainly have a right uh, to know that. Um, my view from day one, Chris, has been uh, that Israel has the right to respond to Hamas's barbaric attack on October 7th. But they do not have the right to go to war against the entire Palestinian people, which is what we are seeing right now. And as you've just mentioned, the humanitarian situation in Gaza now is unbelievably bad. And we're looking at the possibility of hundreds of thousands of children starving. We cannot allow that to happen. Okay, um, Bernie Sanders talking about Israel's right to respond, but not talking most meaningfully about Israel's right to defend itself. And defending itself means uh, it basically either eliminating Hamas or, or having some kind of a surrender or change in Hamas which has a genocidal purpose that they're very public about. This is one of the uh, most important aspects of the current debate. They, uh, as there's a piece by Brett Stevens in uh, the New York Times, which is outstanding, uh, which says the charges against Israel are immoral obscenities, talking about the charges by Bernie Sanders and people like that about uh, uh, attacking Israel for war crimes, attacking Israel for genocide, which is the term that is used in the case brought by South Africa in the world court in The Hague. Uh, in recent decades, as many as three million people perished in a famine in North Korea. Uh, that was mainly government-induced. Hundreds of thousands of Syrians were gas-bombed, starved, or tortured to death by the Assad regime. None of this was ever attacked as genocide or ever reached uh, the attention of international institutions. But on Israel defending itself, that does. More on uh, this obscenity. are a moral obscenity. What charges does he mean? The charges at the International Court of Justice, uh, which is a division of the UN, that Israel is committing, has committed, will continue to commit genocide against the Palestinian people. And Brett Stevens writes that in recent decades, as many as three million people perished in a famine in North Korea that was mainly government-induced. Hundreds of thousands of Syrians were gassed, bombed, starved, or tortured to death by the Assad regime, and an estimated 14 million were forced to flee their homes. China has put more than a million Uyghurs in, through gang-like re-education camps 
in through gulag-like, pardon me, re-education camps in a thinly veiled attempt to suppress and erase their religious and cultural identity. And they are, by the way, Muslims, the Uyghurs. But North Korea, Syria, and China have never been charged with genocide at the International Court of Justice. Israel has. How curious and how obscene. Brett Stevens writes, it's obscene because... It politicizes our understanding of genocide, fatally eroding the moral power of the term. The war between Israel and Hamas is terrible, as is every war. But if this is genocide, what do we do have to... But if this is genocide, what word do we have for the killing fields in Cambodia, in Stalin's Holodomor in Ukraine, in the Holocaust itself? It's obscene because it perverts perverts the definition of genocide, which is precise. And this is the way it's quoted in the international law. Genocide is defined as acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such. And... uh, And Brett Stevens makes the point, it uses the term as such, meaning the acts are genocidal only if they are directed at Palestinians as Palestinians, not as members of Hamas or heartbreakingly as collateral deaths in attempts to destroy Hamas. If Israel were trying to commit genocide, it wouldn't be putting its own soldiers at risk or allowing humanitarian relief to arrive from Egypt or withdrawing many of its forces from Gaza. And today there were headlines about uh, Israel has four divisions that are currently in Gaza. One of them has just been sent home. And uh, they uh, are not only withdrawing many of its forces from Gaza, they've also made special arrangements to try to get emergency medical supplies to the people of Gaza as a means of trying to get those same supplies to the hostages that Israel is desperately attempting to extract and to rescue. Uh, I mean, we are going to be speaking uh, sometime in the next couple of days with some families of those hostages. And the idea that, that right now there is an international movement, ceasefire now, which almost never mentions the return of every single kidnapped person, including a one-year-old, that the uh, Hamas had, had taken with them. That is obscene. And that is wrong. And that goes with their very specific genocidal intent to wipe out the uh, Jewish people. Uh If Israel were trying to commit genocide, it wouldn't be putting its own soldiers at risk or allowing humanitarian aid to arrive from Egypt or withdrawing many of its forces from Gaza. It would simply be killing Palestinians everywhere in vastly greater numbers as Germans kill Jews or Hutus kill Tutsis. It's obscene because it puts the wrong party in the dock. Hamas is a genocidal organization by conviction and by design. Its founding charter calls for Israel to be, quote, obliterated, unquote, 
and for Muslims to kill Jews as they, quote, hide behind stones and trees. That's an excerpt from Quran, from Hadith, actually. On October 7th, Hamas murdered, mutilated, tortured, uh, incinerated, raped, or kidnapped everyone it could. Had it not been stopped, it would not have stopped. One of its leaders has since vowed to do it a second, a third, a fourth time. It's Hamas, not Israel, that started the war, that keeps it going, and would resume it the moment it has the arsenal and the opportunity. What is happening now at The Hague will never be a victory for ordinary Gazans, writes Brett Stevens. So no matter the IJCJ's verdict, their victory will come for Gazans only when they have a government interested in building a peaceful and prosperous state rather than destroying a neighbor. But it will serve Hamas as an unparalleled propaganda triumph, this courtroom drama in The Hague. Uh, quite a turn for a group that only months ago proudly filmed itself murdering children. It's obscene also, says Brett Stevens, because it's historically hypocritical. The United States, Britain, and other allied nations killed a staggering number of German and Japanese civilians on the path to defeating the regimes that had started World War II, often known as the Good War. Events such as the bombings of Dresden or Tokyo, to say nothing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, were tragic and far more uh, indiscriminate than anything Israel stands accused of ever doing. But no serious person holds Franklin Roosevelt to be on a moral par with Adolf Hitler. What the Allies did were acts of war in the service of a lasting peace, not genocide in the service of a fanatical aim. The difference? In war, the killing ends when one side stops fighting. In a genocide, that's when the killing begins. Uh, his, his point, it seems to me, is unassailable and uh, extraordinarily important. Uh, meanwhile, there is this statement, which is wildly controversial, uh, by Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel on the future of Israel and its security, clip one. For 30 years, I am very consistent, and I'm saying something very simple. This conflict is not on the lack of a state of Palestinian, but the existence of a state, the Jewish state. Every area that we evacuate, we receive terrible terror against that. It happened in South Lebanon, in Gaza, and also Judea and Samaria, which we did it. And therefore, I clarify that in other arrangement, any other arrangement, in the future, the state of Israel have to control on the entire area from the river to the uh, sea. This is what happens when you have sovereignty. This truth I say to our American friends, and I also stopped the attempt to impose on us a reality that will jeopardize us. A prime minister in Israel has to be able to say no, even to the best of friends, to say no when you need to and to say yes when you can. Okay, what he is talking about is not denying 
any kind of Palestinian participation from the river to the sea, but ensuring security for the Jewish people who live between the river and the sea, and for all those living in that territory. Uh, we will be right back on the Medved Show. Become a Medhead member today. Michael, I'm in the... Discuss with you. You have to calm down first. This Are you calm? is the Michael Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved Show, uh, again, the U.S. Senate has passed a government funding bill to move the deadline for actually having a fully detailed separate spending bills approved by both houses, signed by the president. Uh, we now have until March 2nd and Mar- March 9th. Those are the two deadline dates. The bill passed by the U.S. Senate, uh, 77 to 18. It uh, soon apparently is is likely to pass the House. But one of the House members who opposes that kind of extension of government funding is uh, Representative uh, Byron Donalds of Florida who is uh, one of the people who has been discussed as a potential vice presidential nominee for Donald Trump, despite the fact that most people think he is more likely to pick a female. But in any event, uh, Representative Donalds had this to say on Real America's Voice. I believe that if you just continue to fund the government for, for another month or so while, they, while the appropriators figure out how to fund the government, you're not going to have any leverage in order to get border security done. And I think there's a dereliction of our duty as members. So I'm voting no, and I would encourage all of our members to vote no. Okay, the idea that uh, uh, it would be a successful strategy to shut down the government in order to have more border security, which you can't pay for, by the way, <laughs> if the government is shut down. It's, uh, uh, no, it's an extraordinary notion and not one that makes a great deal of sense. I'll tell you something that doesn't make a great deal of sense. There, There is a, a truth social and it's all in capital letters, which means that you know that it was very, very important to Donald J. Trump. And so I'm going to read the whole thing because it's remarkable. And you may remember that he has brought before the Supreme Court and there is going to be a decision on this. And the decision is uh, very, very likely to not be one favorable to President Trump. So he's making his argument here on Truth Social. He says a president of the United States must have full immunity, without which it would be impossible for him, her to properly function. Any mistake, even if well intended, would be met with almost certain indictment by the opposing party at term end. Uh, By the way, do you know how many presidents have been indicted at the end of the term with without full immunity? Because there is no full immunity now. No one. He's the first one. And in other words, the idea that this is something that the institution of the presidency requires, President Reagan was able to be a great president uh, without full immunity. Uh, He continues, even events that cross the line must fall under total immunity or it will be years of trauma trying to determine good from bad. There must be certainty. 
Example, you can't stop police from doing the job of strong and effective crime prevention because you want to guard against the occasional rogue cop or bad apple. Yes, you can. If a police officer crosses the line and does something like uh, Officer Chauvin did with the case of George Floyd, he's going to stand trial. There's no full immunity for being a police officer or for being a rogue cop. Uh, sometimes you just have to live with great but slightly imperfect. Is that something we have to apply to our police forces too? That it is wrong to ever discipline or prosecute or question something that a police officer has done or that a president has done? All presidents must have complete and total presidential immunity or the authority and decisiveness of a president of the United States will be stripped and gone forever. Hopefully, this will be an easy decision. God bless the Supreme Court. Uh, <laughs> if that is the strongest argument for full immunity that uh, President Trump puts all in capital letters, it seems to me it is uh, uh, worth uh, questioning, at the very least. Uh, speaking of questioning... Uh, Nikki Haley is continuing her campaign in New Hampshire, and uh, she actually is speaking partially, not, not simply about who would be a better president, but what people are choosing right now is a Republican nominee. Who would work better, more effectively for the Republican Party, and actually strengthening the Republican Party all up and down the ballot for the Senate, for the House, for state legislatures, for governorships. Here's Nikki Haley, clip 16. Trump says things. Americans aren't stupid to just believe what he says. The reality is who lost the House for us? Who lost the Senate? Who lost the White House? Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump. Nikki Haley will win every single one of those back for us. The second he says he's going to get on the stage, I'm ready. He hasn't done anything. He threw a temper tantrum last night. Uh, and uh, the temper tantrums that uh, she's talking about, I think, uh, involve some of the ongoing proceedings in the E. Jean Carroll case. I believe that case wraps up tomorrow. I am not sure when a decision will be handed down. But uh, given the fact that President Trump has um, really gone in uh, with both guns blazing, you'll pardon the expression, against the judge in that case. And one of the things that people say who work with juries is juries usually have a respect and sympathy for the presiding judge. And uh, I am not sure that this case is going to be a big success for President Trump. Speaking of big success, Ron DeSantis was assumed to be a, a natural front runner for President of the United States when he announced his campaign. Uh, here he talks with Hugh Hewitt on the radio about missteps early in his drive for the presidency. This is clip six. Presidential campaigns are a lot about, about media. Like, you know, I spent a lot of time on the ground in Iowa, and, and it's good, and when you meet people, you convert them, but there's just so many voters out there that you gotta do. And I came in uh, not really doing as much media. Um, I should have just been blanketing. I should have gone on all the corporate sh shows. I should have gone on everything. I started doing that as we got into the end of the summer, um, and we did it. 
but we had an opportunity, I think, to come out of the gate and do that and reach a much broader folk. Now I'm everywhere. I mean, I'll show up uh, wherever. I, I committed to do the debate tonight on WMUR and ABC in New Hampshire. I'm the only one that was uh, that's willing to debate. I've done these televised town halls. I go out and take questions from voters. You know, I think that's good. I'm the only one that's not, at this point, running a basement campaign. Biden's running a basement campaign. Trump won't debate, won't take questions from voters. And now Haley won't debate and won't uh, take uh, questions from voters. Okay. Uh, she has said she will debate if President Trump does. Oh, and, and by the way, here is President Trump last night in New Hampshire. Uh, listen. But we're also going to place strong protections to stop banks and regulators from trying to debank you from your, you know, your, your political beliefs, what they do. They want to debank you, and we're going to debank. Think of this. They want to take away your rights. They want to take away your country. The things you're doing, all electric cars, give me a break. If you want an electric car, good. But they don't go far. They're very expensive. They're going to be made. Okay. Uh, debanking you? Uh Regulators are trying to debank you from your political beliefs is what they do. Um, what exactly is he talking about? Uh, it uh, remains unclear. By the way, when uh, Ron DeSantis talks about some of the mistakes he made at the beginning of the campaign, yes, some of those mistakes involved media. Who came up with the brilliant idea of not doing a normal announcement of candidacy, but by trying to do one together with Elon Musk, who, who, by the way, is Elon Musk's endorsement or association with Elon Musk, does that really help you win in uh, the Republican nomination for president or the presidency itself? It's uh, a, a very real uh, there is another very real question that we will get to. There's an information uh, and an analysis just done by a religious liberty group about 2023, the year just passed, uh, being a all-time negative record in terms of violent attacks against Christians for the crime of living as Christians. Uh, where was that attack most ferocious? And uh, what can people do about it? What can America do about it? Uh, we will talk about that with Gordon Shang and also the prospect of a new attack, surprise attack by Korea, which many experts say is being hinted at by Kim Jong-un. Speaking to Gordon Shang, coming up in This Greatest Nation on God's Green Earth.